and thanks for tuning in to 90,000 Hours. I'm your host and producer, Robin Landy. Today's episode features Ray Mann, who after retiring from a career in software engineering turned to paleontology and now volunteers leading field crews at the Gray Fossil Site in Tennessee and the Marmoth Research Institute in North Dakota. Thanks to Ray for sharing his story. As always, a big thank you to Eric Kuhn for the use of his music in this episode, and thank you for listening. The interest in paleontology was always far before, you know, it's a kid thing. (laughs) So um, I guess maybe we should start when I was a kid, like every other paleontologist that I've ever met. When you're seven or eight years old, you see all the dinosaur literature, you see the books, you see the, the movies, and you think, wow, I want to do that. But you have no idea what that entails. You don't know where their actual dinosaur fossils are. And so you just, you know, usually about the time you're a teenager, you just forget about it and you start doing something real. And so that was my case. I, you know, went to college, uh, started learning computers. I did software systems. I got hired by Microsoft and I, you know, out of college, I was there for 15 years and didn't really give it a second thought. And then the tech boom in the 90s said, hey, here's all the money you're going to need for the next little while. Why don't you just relax and raise your kids? So I did. And then from there, it got a little weird because my wife and I were all of a sudden stuck together in the house. And it's harder to do that when you're used to having one person out working. So she said, get out and do something. (laughs) So it took me a while to figure out, okay, well, what can I do? I, I decided I would take my daughter on a trip. One of the things I thought we could do was to go out on a little dinosaur hunt. And so I looked online and there was uh, Marmoth Research Foundation, which was the only one that would that would take teenagers her age and allow me to bring her on the trip. So we went there. It was hot. It was dusty. It was hard work. My daughter, Michaela, just she loved the idea, but she hated the work. On the other hand, I was hooked. And so I came back uh, the next three or four years. And so suddenly I'm more necessary to their operation than I thought I would be. It's like, when is Ray coming? We will assign him this team. And it happened very surprisingly. (laughs) You see that the actual paleontologists need more help than they're getting from the field crew. So you say, hey, do you need some help? And they say, yes, you can be here for at least two weeks. Uh, We'll pay for your food and uh, lodging and, uh, you know, welcome to the team. It's like, wow, (laughs) I don't remember applying for this job, but here I am. So from there, every time I could get out there for two or three weeks, uh, I would just take a plane or drive or whatever and... They would just say, okay, you've got these five people, go out and dig up this Thessalosaur. It's like, okay. You have to learn by doing. There's no real field book. You just get out there and you do what you saw them do. 
And, you know, then you become indispensable because you're the one willing to do the hard work. So that describes how I got there. It was a conversation in the pastime bar after work. It was a particularly hot day. Uh, it was a, probably 102 degrees that day in the Badlands. And I sat down to have a beer and to relax because I was beat. And Dr. Leeson sat down next to me and I said, wow, you guys seem really shorthanded because we had to do a lot of work without enough people. And then that's when he offered me the job. He said, well, you know, <laughs> you think we need more people? Come on in. You know, the very next day, I was just getting told how to actually run a team. <laughs> and it was, it was intimidating. It was absolutely one of the most intimidating things that's ever happened to me because I felt gloriously unqualified. Okay, so the first place I've worked, uh, Marmoth Research Foundation, is in Marmoth, North Dakota, and it's uh, kind of a privately uh, run setup, but it's affiliated right now. It used to be affiliated with the Smithsonian. Now it's affiliated with the Denver Museum of Science and Nature. Essentially, they give enough resources to make sure that it doesn't fail, but they're really very hands-off about it. So Dr. Tyler Leeson, who was famous quite some years ago for uh, finding a, a mummified hadrosaur. He is essentially the brains behind the entire outfit. You know, he figures out, you know, what that year's uh, goal or goals are. So one year, for instance, we were, how much, <laughs> how much knowledge can I assume people have on this? Very little. Okay. An event in time where suddenly there are no dinosaurs. Uh, 65 million years ago, everything stops. And so there was always a major question of exactly why that is. And there was an event that left an ash layer, uh, probably from a meteorite impact down near Mexico. And there are no dinosaurs other than birds past that moment in time. The problem that occurred there, though, is there are also no dinosaurs buried within about uh, three meters of that. There's this gap in time that's slightly lower than that. And his goal was, for instance, that that year we were going to go look for dinosaurs closer to that boundary. And uh, he was successful in finding dinosaurs. So I, you know, helped work on a team that uh, was working on a triceratops within, I think, what was it, 10 centimeters of the KT boundary. You know, the next time, for instance, it's uh, here is this beautiful example of a Thessalosaur that we need out of the ground or here is a very large but well-articulated triceratops over here that you know has bite marks on it. We need to have that out because it's scientifically necessary. The interesting part to me anyway is that, well, first of all, everything you find has never been seen before. No matter how trivial in a paleontological sense, it is the first time that this, you know, triceratops uh, has seen the light of day, and you're advancing the knowledge base of the entire community just by finding this thing, and whatever knowledge is gained by that gets put back out into the world. Adding to the human knowledge base is very appealing to me. Every once in a while you find something that is unexpected or uh, even possibly brand new to science, and so those things are very appealing to me because I'm not a scientist, but I am a tool of scientists. 
I'm not writing the papers, but I am helping people write the papers. And so without people like me there, they wouldn't have anything to work And so I find that to be very valuable in its own way. The Badlands typical day is much different than the typical day uh, here at the Gray Fossil Site, where I've been doing most of my work lately. So in the Badlands typical day, you get up pretty early, 6.30ish or whatever. You get some breakfast. You load your team into the car with the shovels and the trowels and the uh, possibly a bucket full of uh, plaster and a bucket full of water, five-gallon bucket. You park your car as close to your site as you can, but usually that's not all that close. And you trudge for a mile or a mile and a half, whatever it takes to get to your site. And then essentially you assign a little piece of ground to someone and everyone uses their tools to drop the, if you're thinking of the ground as like a pool of water and you're dropping the water level around the fossils. So you're exposing them slowly. And as soon as you get a fossil that you know the extent of, then you make a pedestal around that and you start uh, undercutting that and you put a plaster jacket on just like you'd splint an arm and you put a cast on it and you pop it out of the ground and you keep doing that over and over and over until you have the entire site dug and excavated. And in the meantime, every time you find something, you have to do surveying on it because without the data, the fossils are essentially useless. Like Adam Savage has said on Mythbusters, the only difference between screwing around in science is that in science, you write things down. And so we had to be out there making meticulous notes. Uh, you draw your pictures of the site in the field book. You write down the numbers of how far it is from each pin. Then you make <laughs> new assignments, all right? You're digging over here now instead, and you just keep going. Often you take time to build a road uh, so you can actually get the big jackets out of there because if you can't take them out, of course, they're useless to science. So there's a lot of what looks like the sort of labor that your mom always warned you about if you didn't get a good education. You know, you're going to be out there using a shovel, div digging a ditch if you don't get some learning into you. Well, here you are with all the learning and you're digging a ditch. At the gray fossil site, the, uh, the day is slightly different. I can roll in Whenever I want to, the doors open generally around nine o'clock. Within about 45 feet of any place I'm digging, there is a water fountain <laughs> and a break room with a refrigerator. It is soil as opposed to sandstone that you're digging through. So uh, generally, it's really, really luxury digging at the Gray Fossil site. <laughs> it's almost embarrassingly easy compared to some of the places that I've dug out in the Badlands. But there are no dinosaurs at the gray fossil site. You have uh, Pliocene mammals and lizards and turtles and all that. Uh, in fact, it's vastly different from what most people think. As soon as you describe to someone what you're about to do, they think of that first scene in the movie Jurassic Park where they uh, make this machine rattle the ground a little bit, then suddenly they have a perfect picture of an articulated fossil and then they just sweep it away with a broom and there it is and it's perfect. That literally never happens. Uh, that's just not a thing. So instead what you have 
is all of your digging is done with tiny tools. With a trowel is the biggest thing you have, maybe a three inch trowel. Sometimes you use a pallet knife. So you never use a shovel, you never use a pick. That would be the worst possible thing you could do. And you would be asked politely to leave. You're not always finding beautiful, complete, articulated skeletons of anything. When you do find those, it's rare and it's wonderful, but most of the time you're going to find a finger bone of, uh, you know, let's say a red panda, or you're going to find a wrist bone of this rhinoceros over here. You're going to find uh, this broken chip of something that might have been part of a skull. But, you know, generally you're not finding all of anything. If you bury something and it lasts for 6,000 years, you're going to be lucky if it's there at all, much less if it's actually there all in one piece and beautiful and ready for you know display. Yes, most of the time it is dramatically different from the impression that people have gotten from books and movies. And that's where people get most of their information about this sort of thing. The biggest issue I have is sometimes there would be the possibility that I would break something that is irreplaceable. You know, we glue things together all the time, but if there is a piece of something that has never been described before or has never been seen before or is interesting in some kind of pathological way, the last thing that I want to be doing is running my trowel directly through it. And so there's this sense of tension the entire time you're digging. If you're relaxing too much, you're doing it wrong. But if you're too tense, you're also doing it wrong because then, you know, you're you're digging like, you know, like a robot and you can't get through soil and bone and, and sort those out while you're digging unless you're relaxed and kind of in tune with your own self. You go into this weird prioceptic feedback mode where everything you're doing you're hypersensitive to that, so it's hard to converse. It's hard to uh, pay any attention to your surroundings. It's really, really great for someone who has Asperger's syndrome. I mean, this is the perfect job for an Aspie because if you want someone who can hyper-focus onto something and just work and work and work, there you go. I mean, you know, I am undiagnosed, but I'm definitely Asperger. And so it, uh, it's kind of one of the perfect jobs for someone who has what some people would consider a, a set of disabilities can turn into a set of skills depending on where you use them. And in this case, you can take that weird hyper-focus and that weird prioceptic thing that a lot of Asperger's people have, and you can turn it from a liability into some kind of actual workable system. When you're leading a team, you have to think about everybody else's safety. You have to make sure they're drinking all their water. You have to make sure that they're not, you know, putting their hand in a hole where there's going to be a rattlesnake. You have to make sure that they're not climbing on a section of cliff that's going to give way. That's much more stressful than I, you know, even as a parent, you know, I've, I've been a parent for 26 years and it's harder to be a team leader on something like this than it is being just a parent because you don't know these people. You don't know how they're going to take your instructions. You don't know how well they follow instructions, even when they do take them. 
so that part is stressful on its own. You know, you have to be good with people and you also have to be able to tell people, okay, you know, here's how you do this. You need to do it this way. This is uh, not negotiable. Scientists in general, but paleontologists I've noticed in particular, are very fussy about their methods. And sometimes it gets to the point where you have to follow their methods very closely, but they aren't very good at articulating what those methods actually are in practice. And the other thing in paleontology that really needs to change, and I think it is changing, but slowly as well, and that's that it's... It's a bunch of middle-aged white guys. <laughs> okay, you know they need more diversity in their uh, workforce as well. They really do. Um, there's a little misogyny that goes on. There's a little bit of uh, dismissal of uh, anyone that's you know outside that little clique, and it uh, it's a pity. A lot of the people that I've worked with, you know, have great insight into a lot of things, but you know some of the greatest insight and ability that I've seen has been, you know, female paleontologists and, you know, they don't get, it seems as much credit as they uh, earn. So I'm hoping that that <laughs> goes by the wayside as well, because it's, it's not helpful and it's not useful. There is one thing about paleontology in general that is fascinating and uh, frustrating at the same time. And that is that very little about it has changed since the uh, 1800s. Almost all of the methods are exactly what you'd have seen, except that instead of horses, we have cars. It needs to grow a little bit faster and uh, better than it is. I mean, we're getting there. We're starting to do uh, computer models of the bones and we're starting to do uh, you know, I've done some 3D printing so that we can actually reconstruct some of the actual skeletons and bones better. But really, it is as primitive a job as one could possibly imagine to do. And sometimes it's it's really frustrating to think that uh, there may be better ways to do some of this, but they're not essentially very welcomed yet because it's just not the way it's done. A lot of the limitations are simply what we'd call dogma and tradition, really. Database management would be really, really good. And they're starting to do more of it, it's starting to get better. It used to be, you know, you pull out the drawer and, and there are the fossils in there and they're labeled, but you don't know what you're going to find in the drawer. Now, uh, the gray site and other places, they actually have, you know, computer databases and, uh, you know, a little bit more in the way of cross-referencing and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, you're still putting the, the bones together with super glue and Bondo. And it seems that there could be <laughs> a little bit more forward movement. I really hope the dogma it melts away slowly. Part of the problems with fossils in general is that a lot of the animals that you're looking for, whether you're in the uh, Cretaceous, where I you know did most of my digging, you know you have very large animals, and their constituent parts have turned to actual rock. Then you're digging them up, but you're digging up a bunch of dirt with them, and you're putting it in a plaster jacket, and it all weighs an incredible amount. And you're in the hot sun. You know, you have a limited amount of water and you have to park a long way away and you're carrying very heavy objects. A lot can go wrong. 
you know, so you can have broken ankles, you can have uh, repetitive strain injuries, you can tweak your back to the point where you can't move the next day. You have people who uh, forget to drink the right amount of water. You have people with medical conditions that you weren't aware of until such time as you become acutely aware of them in the field. So people with low blood pressure or high blood pressure, it's not for the faint of heart or for that matter, for the frail. That said, you know, everyone can do paleontology. There are a lot of different things. Not all paleontology is field work. In fact, very little of paleontology is actually going out and doing the prospecting and the digging. There's preparation of the fossils. There's curation of the fossils. There's science that comes from study of the fossils. The part of paleontology that I do is the only one with real danger to it. But most of that real danger is easy to mitigate if you're not being stupid. One of the things that you have to be able to do is you have to understand that every job, no matter how glamorous it sounds uh, when you're a kid or how um, interesting it looks when you're watching it on the Discovery Channel special, there are parts of it that are not just difficult and long, but they're also tedious and repetitive. There is a lot of tedious, repetitive work involved in every bit of paleontology, but the excavation portion of the show is sometimes amazingly so, because you have layers of dirt, possibly you know meters thick, and you have to get down through those layers of dirt where there may be fossils, but they're probably not very good quality fossils, but you still have to be aware of them. So you have to dig slowly through essentially garbage overburdened dirt. You know, you can be there for three weeks or a month just getting down to the fossil layer in the place you're interested in and finding essentially nothing and knowing you're going to find essentially nothing. That's just part of the task is getting down to the fossil layer. But you can't get in there with a backhoe or a shovel because in between where you are and where you want to be may be something important. So you can't just bully your way through. We keep every uh, bag full of dirt that we excavate. We have it in big piles and the volunteers at Gray sift through that in the water they screen wash every bit of it because we're looking for everything from mice and fish and lizards and, uh, for that matter, plant material. All of that is interesting to the scientists. It's not all the big sexy beasts, you know, the rhinoceros and the mastodon. They're really wonderful and everyone loves them and they're, you know, they're a big draw at the museum. But that's not where most of the actual science comes from. You have to understand that even the little micro things are important to everyone. So you have to be meticulous all the way through. And sometimes meticulous is exhausting. I've learned quite a few things uh, doing this. One of them is that anyone, literally anyone, can contribute to something as big as the knowledge base of the world. If you come in and if you do what you're asked in the way that you are asked to do it, then suddenly you're part of a huge team of people who are all of a sudden knowing more about the world than we started.
that as a lesson to me, the teamwork lesson is amazing to me because a lot of people would think, hey, you're going out and you're digging, you know, and you found something and that's, you know, your thing and you get to name it. It's like, no, that's not how any of this works. If I find something, I put a little flag there and then we survey it out and then it becomes a number and the uh, the people in the lab then we'll look at it and they will do some you know prep on it and make sure that it's all glued together and they will determine what it is, but it's out of my hands and that's okay. It's okay to hand off something really cool and say, Hey, we found this, not I found this, but we found this. We had a, a really wonderful month this last month where one of the paleontologists at the gray site was doing some surveying and she looked down at her foot and there was something in the uh, the soil next to her foot. Turns out it was a rhinoceros toe bone and hoof core. And so she and uh, one of the other people started, you know, doing some excavation down there. And then all of a sudden, right next to that was an alligator humerus. And then next to that was some uh, tapir bones. And and just everywhere we were going, we were finding just an amazing array of uh, beautiful fossils. And so as I was helping bring down another square right next to it, so they had room to do all this work, there's a snapping turtle. And there are only like four or five snapping turtle examples at the gray site. It was a very big deal, but it wasn't me. <laughs> and that's the thing. As cool as it is to have been the first one to see it, it's not my turtle. It's the gray fossil sites turtle. Being precious about any of that is the wrong foot to stand on. You know, you don't have anything that you need to do that's not doable by the rest of the team. I consider doing this uh, work actually to be pretty integral to who I am. How to put this? I'm a paleontologist by experience and not, you know, by education. I am a stained glass artist by experience and not by education. I am a, uh, a woodworker, very bad one right now, but I'm trying to work my way up. So I am, I am a sum of the things that I accomplish as well as, you know, the personality that goes along with it. I am a good father. I am a, uh, a good field worker in the paleontology. I'm a good teacher of, you know, <laughs> many different things. So it is integral to everything that I am. Uh, I think I would be poorer as a person without it.